Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we have to uh, just talk about what it is ultimately that our goal is here. We want to be faithful to the commission that you've given us, and we want, Lord, not to be working in vain. We want to have fruit from our labors. We want the blessing of God. So please, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight today, and as we talk about these keys to success, Lord, help us to remember that what's most important is that we do our duty and leave the success with you, but help us to see how we can be more efficient and proficient in the work of winning souls so that we can see greater fruit from our labors, for we ask it in Jesus' name. A few of them I'm just going to put up here and mention, and a few of them I'm going to take a little more time to talk about. So the first one is uh, commune with God. And if I could just... Um, it should be go without saying, but it needs to be said. Um, and that is that if you are on fire, you will start a fire. Okay? If you are not, you're going to be much more mechanical and, you know, the Lord can use a donkey for sure, but he's, uh, he would rather use people who are, you know, totally sold out for him. So by having communion with God, you'll be in tune, you'll be at peace with God, and you'll be more excited about sharing. And I'm telling you, your conviction brings conviction. And so make sure that you're staying close to God, spending personal time with God, being in regular communion with God. Number two, I've got seven here. Know your topic. One of the things that uh, sometimes doesn't get quite enough attention is, you know, there is a difference between someone who understands the logic of the truth and someone who doesn't. Now, logic won't win a single soul by itself, okay? But there is a power in our message in that it is, it is uh, harmonious, it's a perfect chain of truth, it makes sense, and that clarity and, and the ability to understand an argument in an airtight way is persuasive. And you want to, you know, this is a, a what I would call a developing uh, trait, um, but you don't want to stop in terms of your growing and learning and getting more solid. I'm not talking about getting more interesting in terms of, uh, you know, trying to come up with uh, crazy and sensational ways of understanding something. I'm just talking about slowly but surely pecking away at little doubts that exist. You know that every, when you became a Seventh-day Adventist, if you, if you study this message from outside the church, it's not like there was nothing you didn't have a question about. I mean, there were things that you had, but there was just so much weight of evidence that you went with that weight of evidence. But as time goes on, you're trying to peck away at those little doubts and questions until you are making it more and more solid. So the more solid it is, the more you're going to be able to be convincing and, and, and persuade. And, you know, when I go into a Bible study, I'm chomping at the bit. I'm just, because I'm just sure that if I can just have a little bit of time, <laughs> the truth is so clear. It's so powerful. Unless they are going to stubbornly resist it, it's going to win them. I mean, it's just that clear. I mean, there's... and and. The more you study and peck away at your own questions, the more you have that. And let me tell you something. When you share with people, when you talk to people, that becomes evident. Your own conviction. Now, I'm not talking about being overbearing, but I just mean in yourself. Having that confidence in the message is something that really does make a difference. It really does. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the reason that a great number of Seventh-day Adventists do not give Bible studies or share their faith is actually because they have certain hang-ups. They're not saying it. They're not admitting it. But they've got certain hang-ups about our doctrines. And when you see them saying, oh, well, we shouldn't push in this or whatever, oftentimes what they're saying is, I'm not so sure that's true. 
I'm not so clear about that. Okay? And that's why they don't get decisions. Uh, so, know your topic. If you have doubts about something, drill down and get to the bottom of it. Talk to people that you would have confidence in who have maybe taken time to study it out and say, I really want to understand this better and drill down and, and get to where you are removing those areas that, that would create in your own mind a hesitancy to call someone to a decision about something. Maybe I'll give you an example here for a moment. Perhaps one of the most sensitive and uh, questioned areas of our faith is uh, in Adventist lifestyle. And specifically, jewelry. And let me be clear, you are not going to get a decision from someone to follow Christ and dress modestly unless you are convicted from the Bible that that is exactly what God is calling us to do. You understand what I'm saying? So you say, well, I read the text, but, you know, and I, I can kind of see it. I, I went with it because, you know, everything else made sense. But, you know, I can't really airtight say that Paul was saying absolutely no jewelry. And so, so therefore, I'm not going to call someone else. I'm going to wait. When I get to that point, I'm going to say either, well, you know, we just need to give them time and whatever. Or we'll say, you know, here's where we ask the pastor to, uh, to you know, because we do not feel right doing something that we do not know for sure in our hearts. Um, before we're done, maybe I'll talk a little bit about the jewelry issue specifically. Would that be okay with you if I did that? Um, just to share with you a couple of thoughts on it, because I have dug deep enough myself that I feel convicted. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to take one more question on this. And then, yeah. Uh, I don't know that I read that. Mm -mm. Very good. Very good. Yeah, he's been president here since I was in college, so it probably, he probably wrote it early on. Yes. Yeah, okay, I'm going to pause you a second. Okay, I want to get back to that in just a moment. Okay, I'll share just a few thoughts, um, but I don't necessarily want us to get deep into that right now because I've got to get through with some things. I appreciate what you just said. I would say this. Um, I wouldn't say it outside of here. Um, because when you're sharing with someone who is struggling with that, the last thing they want is, last thing they're going to accept is that they're associating with the devil because they're whatever. Even though I know that's not, you know, maybe in the broader scheme of things, they might be able to see that down the road um, that, that the devil has brought deception in in that regard. But this is one of the, when we're talking about, you know, maybe I should finish what I'm about to say. <laughs> Because when I get to the keys to success, one of the aspects is you're dealing with people. And when you're dealing with people, you need to have uh, a very clear sense of how to bridge the gap from you know, where there is going to be some defensiveness to where they're open to the truth. And on practical areas, there's, no, there's nothing like practical areas to test how we do at that. And um, to me... When you're talking about anything, jewelry included, the best thing are plain statements in the Bible. And what we're going to do is we're going to just look at, you know, because you can do come up with a lot of uh, ideolo ideological, philosophical rationales for why we should do it. But I like when the Bible just says it. And that's what I use when I talk to them. I want to, be, I want to just go right to what the Bible says, which is what we're going to do in just a minute. But before I do, I'm going to give you a couple more here. Number three, and um, just because I know what we're wrestling with with time, we may have to talk about this for a few minutes this afternoon, Mark. But one of the number one reasons that lay people struggle with Bible studies is they are not working with ripe interests. And they don't know how to categorize interests. Um, when you have a series of meetings, you should take your list and categorize those interests. An A interest is someone who is there all the time, they're coming regularly, 
they're asking questions, they're making decisions, they're talking about changes that they're making, okay? That's an A interest. A B interest may come, and that sort of thing, but regularly, so you know there's a strong interest, but you've not necessarily seen evidence of change, or you know, you're not quite sure if they're ready to step over the line. Um, a C interest would be somebody that, you know, they come periodically, uh, they're, you know, kind of off and on, you, you, you've not really sensed that they, they've kind of got a bit of a guard, you don't know really that there is a strong interest there yet. And the, the idea with any type of soul winning is that you're trying to move your C's to become B's, your B's to become A's, and your A's to be baptized. And uh, one of the challenges that we run into is studying with the same people over and over again who are not really responsive to the truth, and they're not making changes or decisions to follow and obey the truth. Okay? They may act like they love it, but then when you get to talking to them about, you know, the Sabbath is the seventh day, and, you know, what does that mean, and what have you, and they just on and on and on are not making any change, not showing any evidence that they are, are going to make a change, then what you're dealing with is a situation where sometimes people dislike the company. They like the, uh, there's a, almost a false sense of security that they're getting, that the fact that they're in the process, even though they're not making decisions. Um, and so finding those interests who are ripe and the only way you can find, uh, find interests who are ripe, meaning interests who make decisions to actually follow the truth when they hear it, the only way that you can determine that is if you are bringing them to that point and if you are actually asking them to obey. And this is where a lot of our, why a lot of our members, they don't even know where their interests are. I'll tell you, when I went to the South Lion Church to pastor there, um, there were, I mean, I couldn't believe it. The, the church had maybe 35 people attending. And, uh, and out of that 35 people attending, maybe 15 were not Adventists. And they were coming to things and whatever. And the, the members just did not know what to do. <laughs> they were coming. They were studying with them. They were part of what was going on or whatever. But they didn't know what needed to be done. And I went in there in that first year. We had a bunch of baptisms. It was a wonderful year. But what I'm telling you is you need to learn that soul winning is, is advancing. You are always advancing them and you are looking to advance them. And um, so only when you have that mindset are you able to determine whether interests are ripe or not, is my point. Because they may have done four rounds of studies with somebody at South Lyon. That didn't mean that they weren't ripe interests. They just didn't know because they weren't actually asking them to follow where they needed to follow. You understand what I'm saying? You can't know. You don't know until you test that. And so you have to have that mindset. And once you have that mindset, then you start recognizing who's ripe, who's not, and you start dealing with them differently based on how you categorize them. Um, Number four is, should go without saying as well, but I'm going to write it down anyway. Be genuine and loving. What do I mean by genuine? Um, you know, don't, don't be so concerned with talking and sharing your concepts and what have you that you're not able to empathize and sympathize with someone. I mean, soul winning is a heart endeavor. And you're talking to a person. And that person has all manner of, of background and, and things that have made them who they are. And you need to be genuine and relatable with people. Um, there are some people who are very mechanical. And they're mechanical when they give their Bible studies. They're mechanical when they talk to people. 
they're too worried about what they're going to say to think about what's actually happening in the heart of the person that they're talking to. They're, they're not able to come out of themselves and to actually think about the other person. So, and, and by the way, when I say be genuine, I mean, um, how many of you are PhDs? Okay, then don't act like one. Oh, we had one over here. Did you raise your hand? Yes, all right. In, uh, uh, in what? Say it again. Amen. Amen. All right, well, you can act like one. <clears throat> but hopefully it's not much different than everybody else, right? But the idea is you don't want to try to be somebody that you're not, okay? Um, that doesn't mean, and I'll be careful to say this, if you are struggling in your Christian life and you are, um, you've got besetting sins in your life and you're being vulnerable in your study and letting them know about it or whatever, guess what you're not going to be able to do? Get decisions for them to follow the truth. You're not going to get it. So that's not what I'm talking about, about being genuine. If you're truly genuine, you need to, you need to go to the Lord and, and honestly commit to Him, and you'll have such a greater power in your, in your ministry to other people. That doesn't mean that there's never time that you're studying with someone and you're not wrestling with sin. But, and this may sound wrong, I don't know how you're going to expect it, but it's fine for you to say, hey, we all struggle. But I wouldn't be going into details about some current thing that you are going through to try and, and you know, because they're only going to use that to prevent them. And, and you may, you know, be on a forward journey, but they you know, need you to, um, to give them evidence that they can overcome. <laughs> but here's the difference with him talking about haagen And this is a good point. Did he go after the uh, message to the Cedar Reader, Cedar Cafe, and get himself some ice cream? He had, he had an experience and he had overcome, Right? Now, let me ask you a question. Does that mean that we, did we watch Doug Batchelor for years preach about overcoming while he was struggling with haagen Did he ever say anything about it? And he shouldn't have. You follow what I'm saying? It's not that it was a, you know, this was not, you know, he wasn't cheating on his wife here. This was, you know, I mean, he had a, a battle with the flesh which we sometimes will have, okay? Um, and he has passed through it and now using it as experience to let people know that they too can make it through it. But I certainly, if I was him, wouldn't be talking about it in the midst of that battle, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Right. So you, which is all the more reason why we should be above reproach, Okay. I'm not trying to condone anything, and certainly if somebody was, you know, um, in the midst of a very grievous sin or something, I, I would not even have you, I would have you deal with the Lord and get things right before, but if somebody's struggling with ice cream, I, I don't view that the same way. I mean, Jesus didn't either. I want you to understand something. Jesus said, um, you, you tithe mint and anise and cumin. And you do what? Omit or neglect the what? Weightier matters of the law. So what does that tell us? That tells us that there are some matters that are weightier than others. And Ellen White herself says this. She says that not all sins are of the same degree. But she also says, but no sin is small in the sight of God. Okay, so nothing is small, which is why we wrestle to overcome even those things that maybe early in our experience we didn't see as a problem, but God has begun to tell us that maybe this is a problem. But during all of that, we're wanting to be winning souls. We're wanting to be, you know... Um, so when we're talking about things that are, that are battles that we go through in this life, I'm just saying don't flaunt them and use them as sort of a, hey, I'm being real with you kind of thing because it really uh, takes away 
the conviction and the solemnity of what you're doing because uh, you're wanting to lead them to make decisions. So, okay, I've got three more that are sort of related now. I'm going to put down number five. Make Bible truth clear. And I especially, you know, I want to say this. Uh, I know some evangelists, we, we talk about appeals a lot uh, when you work in evangelism because of the importance of appeals. And I've heard it many times by very strong evangelists, the idea that you can give a real poor sermon, but if you have a real good appeal, then you can get decisions and make, you know, whatever. And I think there's truth to that, but I don't think that the decision gained from that appeal will be as sustainable as if the message itself was solid and clear. See, the clarity and persuasiveness of what you share has the greatest impact on holding them in the truth that you have shared. Okay, So, just like the other day when we were doing labs and I talked about how you share the idea of, you know, no pork, you know, and you read it in Leviticus 11, or pigs or swine, it's however it reads it in your version. Well, what do I mean by being clear? I mean, they might not remember that sausage is that. You've got to tell them. They might not remember that bacon or that, you know, whatever. So you say, in a very kind way. Now, what would that include? And then they begin to tell you. And then if they leave any out, you why did you do that? You just want to bring it home. Now we're coming to a point that you need to be crystal clear and you need to know that they are crystal clear. Because it's a point on which they're going to what? Have to make a decision. Anytime you're at a point where they're going to have to make a decision, you've got to make it clear. Okay? Now, if they've gotten it, don't hammer it and ride it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you want to make sure that they understand what's, what's been presented. They understand what the Bible says. And that's true about the Sabbath. I mean, you, know, you might tell somebody, you know... Uh, the Bible um, you know, says that we should make Sabbath a spiritual day. It's not a day for, for all the common things that we so often get into. Are, 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 you, are you willing to make Sabbath a spiritual day? Yes. Okay, well, let's move on. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, what does it mean to make Sabbath a spiritual day? Well, it means you don't buy or sell because Nehemiah 13 specifically says, in the text, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day when there was commerce going on, both buying and selling, happening there in Nehemiah chapter 13? Nehemiah is crystal clear about it. Well, what about work? Well, your manservant or your maidservant. Who might that include? Um, and then they have to tell you. you know, you're wanting to make it clear what's involved in their decision. You understand what I'm saying? Now, why would we not want to make it clear? And I'm not saying it's a good thing to not make it clear. So I'm asking, why would someone avoid making it clear? Maybe they're not themselves doing it, and so they don't want to delve into that. They don't feel comfortable about it. You know that David struggled with his children, and his children became ungodly because of David's sin with Bathsheba. He felt too guilty to discipline his kids because he felt so unworthy. Well, you've got to be careful that you're not projecting your problems onto that candidate and making it fuzzy because it's fuzzy for you. Okay, so that's one reason. What, why else? Okay, if you're not to that step yet, you could say that. Like if you're not to that study yet or something, and it's just coming up in conversation, you might keep it vague because you're not quite ready to, to really dive in. But when it's time, and when the study is happening, it does need to be made clear. But one of the reasons that people don't make it clear is because 
they know that it's going to be uncomfortable when they do. You understand what I'm saying? When you make it clear, as soon as you make it clear, like you know this person works on Sabbath. You know that uh, you know, they're planning to go to the game next Sabbath. And so you don't bring up Isaiah 58 and say, well, how would we apply Isaiah 58 not doing your own pleasure? Well, that might include things such as, you know, I mean, you, you don't say that because you're not wanting it to be uncomfortable. Because you don't want it to be uncomfortable, if, you're, if you don't want it to be uncomfortable, let me just be clear. If you don't want it to be uncomfortable, you will never get a decision from someone for Christ. You won't get it. Because decisions for Christ are amount to a person making a change in their life. And you cannot bring someone to the point of change without them feeling conviction. And conviction is discomfort. That's what it is. And the reason that we have so much struggle as lay people to lead people all the way is that very thing. Of It's almost like we think it's wrong to make people feel uncomfortable. Like we think that we, who are we to impose on them? And whatever. Like we forget that this is a soul that needs one for the kingdom. And that, that Christ is pleading through us, be reconciled to God. I mean, that's what Scripture says. We're ambassadors for heaven. So there's nothing wrong. I'm not talking about making them feel unnecessarily uncomfortable. I'm not talking about putting the weight of the world on them or pressure that's over the top. But I am talking about allowing the discomfort to be there is the only way to gain decisions. So in order to do that, you've got to make it clear. You've got to make it very, very clear. Okay. Then... You've got to ask for obedience. I thought a long time about how to say that. We say appeal for a decision. Appeal for a decision of what? What are we talking about? What you're really doing is simply asking them to obey. You're asking them to obey. So, you know, you share the Sabbath. And then you say, is there, you know, have you thought about keeping the Sabbath yourself? Well, I have. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to? Well, let me promise you that God will honor you if you honor Him. You're encouraging them to obey. And once the truth is made clear, stand your ground for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, stand your ground. That is the risk part of a Bible study that many members don't want. Because you're brought to a point where there's a little bit of discomfort, and if they don't respond favorably, then what might it risk? The friendship, right? The relationship. And so what we do is we avoid. We say, oh, we'll just, you know, we coddle. And we don't, and I'm not talking, saying that we shouldn't be patient and sympathetic, all that. I've got to be careful. But some people never come to the point where they really just encourage someone that, look, you really should do this. The Lord's going to bless you for it. And uh, even though we know that they're going to go home and struggle all night, and we just don't want that. But we've got to ask them to obey. And, and I, I had a you know, pastor one time who said, you know, if you're going to tell someone who's got a job and he's got to feed a family uh, that they need to keep the Sabbath and tell their employer they're not working on the Sabbath, then you need to be ready to put food on their, on their table. I said, no, I don't. I'm not God. Right? But I know that God will honor those who honor Him. And I, I, can, I can say that with full assurance. And I don't know how He's going to do it, but I know He's going to do it. And I know just as well that if they put temporal things above the things of heaven, that they will be lost. So I've got an obligation on my heart. I'm a debtor to God. He has, he has shown me 
And I need to I need to not waver because of self when the time comes. I need to be loving, I need to be encouraging, but I need to not make it make them feel like they're innocent going ahead with whatever sinful lifestyle it is that I'm trying to uh, encourage them to make a change in. So we need to be willing to ask for obedience. And uh, the last one here is aim for baptism. Aim for baptism. What do I mean by that? You need to know what the commitment is involved in someone being baptized and every Bible study you give should be preparation for baptism. You're not just aimlessly studying with them. This is not, you know, and sometimes at first we're like, oh, I just I got a Bible study and that's what we're excited about and we should be. But you need to always be looking forward because if you know what's involved in the commitment and where your end is, it will change what you do along the way. Um, you know, I personally feel that before someone is baptized, and I believe I have the authority of Scripture and the Spirit of Prophecy on this, but I believe that before someone's baptized, they, could, they should make a decision to take off their jewelry. Now, because I believe that, okay, I'm not going to be happy when my sister-in-law... <laughs> I should be careful. But I had a situation come up where I was studying with someone they were a long way off from baptism, okay? And they, they, they liked jewelry, and so someone got them a jewelry box. I'm not going to do that. I don't care if they put it as the first, second, and third thing on their Christmas list. I'm not going to do that. Because I know where I'm going, and I know where they're going, and they're not going to be needing it. You understand what I'm saying? If you, you should look at that person with the full expectation that they are going to be baptized. And everything you're doing is coaching them that way, all along the way. Um, I had a study with my brother and sister-in-law, and uh, they're the ones I told you about before. They're baptized now, and they're here this week. But before they were baptized, it was a struggle. And there were certain areas that I knew was a struggle, and I knew that if I appealed on that, that that there was things coming up that I wasn't going to be able to get the decision. They were not strong spiritually at the time. And I, and I knew I was getting ready to a point where I was going to need to make a call on a certain topic. We were coming close to this topic. And so I really urged them to come to Michigan Camp Meeting. Now, why did I urge them to come to Michigan Camp Meeting? Okay, they see others, interact with others, but also just a week packed of just being around spiritual influences and appeals and everything else, I'll tell you what, we got home and before I even said anything, he was saying, you know what, I've made a decision. And I'm like, praise the Lord. I mean, it was something we hadn't even studied fully yet. But it got brought up here and there and you know, he, so my point is, what was I doing? I was aiming toward baptism the whole time and I was watching to see uh, what needed to happen in his life still? You know, what were the areas that he still was going to need to surrender where he was still outside the will of God and he needed to make a commitment? And then finding ways to put him in environments where he would be urged closer and closer to decision. And you're, you know, Ellen White says that we are to carry the burden of leading souls into the truth. Leading a soul into the truth is not just a sitting down and will you, you know, it's you have to think it through. You've got to coach them. You've got to befriend them. You've got to find ways, interact, help them to interact with somebody who you think might have more influence on them. You've got, you know, you've got a soul that you're trying to lead, and where are you leading them? To baptism. To the commitment where they are surrendered, right? I mean, because let's face it, Jesus mixed no word, mints no words here when he said. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He told us to do it. Don't feel guilty about it. It's not a bad thing to have the goal of baptizing people. That's the gateway into their surrendered life with Christ where now they're connected with the church and they're going to be safer for heaven than they were before. So don't be afraid of that. We always look at him, oh, he's just looking for numbers. Let's not worry about the baptism. No. 
when they make the decision for baptism and they yield those things in preparation for it, they become more secure. It's not eternal security. You know, they've got to walk with the Lord. But we should be aiming toward baptism with our Bible studies. No aimless Bible studies here. No aimless Bible studies. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. Let me, let me say something about it briefly. And uh, if you'll give me till 20 after, I'll steal some time. Um, what, what she is talking about here is something that many members have gone through. But guess what? Many pastors have gone through. They have... They get nervous about that time. And somehow we start thinking that we're, you know, we're, they're going to be worse off when we share this with them. You know, we, we get in our heads, and I'm not saying you were thinking that, but we, we just think, wow, we just wish we could just let, you know, sleeping dogs lie here and not go there. Right. We want them to be comfortable, and we know it's going to create tension and all that sort of thing. But I believe that more than I have spent time with this, that there's a reason why not just jewelry, but other practical lifestyle things are so important. And here's why. Because you have not touched the heart until you have addressed practical items. People say, oh, we need to stay with the heart and not deal with the externals. No, no, no. You're, you're, those people who say that are just totally out to lunch. They've not done soul winning enough to understand what they're talking about. When you are appealing with someone about something that is part of them, that is part of their life, that is when you are hitting the heart. That is when they're having to come face to face with whether or not they will yield their will to the will of God. Okay? If all you're doing is, is beliefs or whatever, uh, you might have a superficial learner and not someone who's genuinely converted. But the, the, but the practical lifestyle issues reveal whether someone, the change of heart. And what the sister said here was, look, when she learned about it, she said, if that's what God is calling me to do. Now, you'll find that people who are um, dedicated to God, it doesn't take them any time. And they, you know, but that's not always the case. Like, like the fastest I ever saw someone take off jewelry was probably Sabrina Thompson. <laughs> Pick on Sabrina. I mean... I had the study with them, and then I was expecting, you know, all the reaction or whatever. And the next time she wasn't wearing it, or whatever, I talked to her husband, said, everything else. Oh, no problem. Are you serious? You know, I mean, it's, it's very rare for that to happen. But I have studied with people who have had, you know, hoop earrings that were worn every day. They were part of their identity. It was, it was who they were. Okay? It's like putting on their clothes. And they're, you know, the, it's who they were. And let me tell you something. One thing that I would, that I would encourage you to do as, a, as a, a future recommendation is don't make the first time they hear about jewelry when you're sitting down to talk to them in preparation for baptism. I learned that the hard way. You know, all of a sudden they're like, you know, broadsided and you're in a one-on-one -on -one meeting. <laughs> Sorry. And it's really <laughs> tough. I have... Booklets that I give them ahead of time. I, if it's an evangelistic meeting, I bring it up in the evangelistic meeting. I do a baptismal class with many people there, and I share it in the baptismal class. Then when we meet personally, they've heard it. They've had something to look through, and now they may not have done anything about it yet, but now I can speak to them without them feeling shell-shocked by what they're hearing. You understand what I'm saying? So the more that you can do that, the better. But let me just take a moment and sh share with you what I tell them when I take somebody to that topic. Do you mind? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's just look first. I go directly to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to try to do this in five minutes, so I'm going to speak super, super fast. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse uh, 8. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8 says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in what type of apparel? Modest apparel. At that point, I'll talk about modesty in a general sense. This means that Scripture teaches that we, there is a limitation to what, how we dress. We should not be flaunting our, especially those parts of our bodies that are sensual through clothes that are too revealing or too tight or whatever the case might be. We need to be 
mindful of the fact that Scripture tells us that we need to dress in modest apparel. But it goes on. It says, with propriety and moderation. Okay. Now, if you have the King James, it's got the shamefacedness word, which is a pretty cool word. But anyway, propriety and moderation. So dress modestly with propriety, uh, appropriateness, and moderation. Okay. Now, uh, the next part of the text is going to tell us what dressing modestly with propriety and moderation is and what it isn't. So the very next part says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now I always make the point of saying, you know, when we're talking braided hair here, the word translated braided hair, it, it was talking about an elaborate hairstyle, not a simple braid that takes five minutes. This is something that's clearly from the context to draw attention. And it was something that in many cases at that time was, uh, you know, weaved in with jewels and what have you. And we have historical accounts of some of that that we could talk about. But for now, just understand, I don't believe the Bible is here talking about a simple braid. But it does mention gold or pearls and then costly clothing. And it uses the specific words, two words that are very important. Not with. Now, if I said to you, uh, let's say I said to the waiter at a restaurant, I'd like an omelet, but not with onions or peppers. And, uh, and he comes back and he gives me an omelet and it's got some onions and peppers in it. And I say, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think there was a mistake. I ordered my omelet and I said not with <clears throat> onions or peppers. He says, I know. That's why I didn't give you very many. What would you say? So, in any common use of the language, not with means not with any. And what is the text? This is Scripture. What does the text say? Not with gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, here's the challenge. Notice that hair and clothing both have an adjective that tells you when they move from being appropriate to being inappropriate. When they move from being appropriate to being immodest. The hair is a certain type of hair. It's translated braided, but it's some type of elaborate style, right? The clothing is what kind of clothing? Costly clothing. It's not saying that you're immodest if you wear clothing. You're only immodest if you wear costly clothing. Now, does it tell you what price the clothes are allowed to be and what price the clothes must not be? No. So on these areas, all we can do is educate the principles. But when it comes to gold or pearls, are there any adjectives before those words? No, because it's simply saying that anything that we adorn ourselves with, that it has the, the only object is to attract attention, is by nature, according to the text, immodest. It even goes on to say, not with gold or, or I'm sorry, uh, braided hair or gold or pearls or cost of clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. What is another word for a woman who professes godliness? A Christian woman, right? So this is saying that it's proper for a woman professing godliness or a Christian woman to adorn herself with good works. And by contrast, it is not proper for a Christian woman to wear jewelry. That's what the text is telling us. Now, it's not, it would be one thing if this was the only place we read it. But if you went and looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, you would find that Peter does the same thing. He compares the outward adorning and the inward adorning and shows them contrasting one another. One is the outward adorning. Let not your adornment be that outward adorning. And then he says, but let it be the meek and quiet spirit, the hidden person of the heart. Right? And he contrasts character with external adorning and says that they, they contradict one another. And then you get to John the Apostle in the book of Revelation and he illustrates exactly what Paul and Peter said in the two churches of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 is talking about the Christian church, the true and pure church, and when he describes the pure church, what is she wearing? 
The sun, the moon, and the stars. What do we call the sun, moon, and the stars? That would all be what kind of light? Natural light. And in the Bible, sometimes it has a short way of saying the sun, moon, and stars. You know what it is? The heavens. You know what it says in the Bible also? It says the heavens declare the glory of God. Here we have a picture of the church being clothed with the glory of God. And if you do a little study in Scripture, such as Exodus 33 and 34, you find that the glory of God is His character. The pure woman is clothed with the natural light of God, the character of God. Is there any artificial adornment on the pure woman of Revelation 12? Any. Now you go to Revelation 17, and you have the harlot woman. Now by the word harlot, you probably get the idea that this church is not the pure church. This church is an unfaithful church. And when you just read the description of the unfaithful church, how much of the sun, moon, and stars do you see on the unfaithful church? None. And what do you see? Gold, pearls, and precious stones. And purple and scarlet, costly clothing, right? It's an exact illustration of what Peter and Paul saw. And how much then should we mingle the two? Well, if you look at the pure church, she was clothed with the glory of God and wore no artificial adornment. You look at the unfaithful church, she had no character of God by which to attract others. So all she could do was adorn herself with, with things to draw attraction to her external self. Okay? But really... Besides the clear teaching in the New Testament, there's one strong reason why we as Seventh-day Adventists follow the Protestant principle, because this is something that we, are not, we didn't come up with, but many Protestants have just been swallowed up by culture and have changed their tune on it. But the Protestant principle of modesty and dress, including abstaining from the wearing of jewelry. And that is, if you look, remember the story of Jesus when they cast lots for his robe and his gold chain? Do you remember that? No, you don't remember that. You remember the robe, but you don't remember the gold chain. You know why? Because he didn't wear one. And we would look at it a little strange if he did. Because Jesus was meek, and lowly in heart, and he wanted to be approachable by anyone of any class, any person. And as Seventh-day Adventists and as Bible believers, we want to be like Jesus. And that's why we hold the position we do. Now you share with someone those simple things. And I'm not opposed to going to Genesis and Exodus and showing how in the Old Testament when they turned back to God, they took off their jewels, they buried them, etc. And there's a chapter in the Discipleship Handbook that goes through the whole jewelry topic. <laughs> wow, you wanted to do that right before... Um, I do always finish by talking about the wedding band. And I explain to them first why I do not wear a wedding band. And I explain that, you know, when I looked at it, I said, because I, I had a wedding band. I used to wear a wedding band. But when I started looking at it, I said, you know, the wedding band is a symbol. And we make exception for functional pieces of jewelry. Right? And some people view that symbol as functional, but me personally, just wanting to be uh, you know, careful in obeying God, I said, well, you know, it's really not, I don't use it. It's not functional. It's symbolic. And if we're going to put symbolic things on, then the class ring and grandma's necklace because she loves me and, you know, whatever, I, you know, I'm just afraid that opens the door. So the main thing to me is I don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. And so I don't need it. And my wife and I don't wear them. But having said that, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we recognize that there are some who view it as uh, obligatory, as a symbol of virtue. You read the Seventh-day Adventist Church manual and it will state that. So in essence, what it's saying is they view it as functional. Okay. So I will tell them that if you choose that you can conscientiously wear a simple band, then 
Um, we will not hinder you from becoming a Seventh-day Adventist for doing that because you're viewing it as a functional piece. But if you do view it as functional, conscientiously, then it only makes sense if it's not for adornment that you would not adorn it. And so I will tell them very plainly that I would not feel comfortable with your commitment to Scripture if you were taking advantage of that functional piece and adorning it with jewels. And so really, if you're going to make that commitment in baptism, including the wearing of a wedding band, then it really needs to be a simple, modest band that's not adorned with jewels. That's the position of the world church. Even though practice is totally different, of course. You know, you go over to California and you know, you wear whatever you want. You go some places, you know. And I've gone into churches as a pastor with people who are active leaders who wore big diamond rings, and I didn't kick them out, and I didn't, you know, get them out of office or whatever. People are in different places, and in some places you have to use discretion. And so what I did was I educated, and I preached from the pulpit, and I gave reasons, and I gave them room and space. It's not an area that once people are in that we um, do anything disciplinary for or anything like that, but we do see it as an area of subtle backsliding that we want to educate on. But when someone's making their first commitment to become a Seventh-day Adventist, they need to agree with what Seventh-day Adventists believe and teach. And so that's why we hold to that position. Now, if you want to know all of that in one little package, you read the chapter in the Discipleship Handbook called The Beauty of Modesty. And it will walk through that whole thing because that's basically what's in there. All right? Now, if you're, if you're clear about that, you know, with them, uh, when you're giving that study, they're going to know what the position is. And you're going to do it in a way that they see scripturally what the decision is. What you don't want to do is be the Seventh-day Adventist who thinks that the only reason that we don't wear jewelry is because Ellen White said so. Unless you can see it in Scripture, you're not ready to share it with someone. But, but let me be clear with you all. When the Bible says not with, it means not with. And, and you don't need to give a symbolic, you know, whatever rationale because it simply says it in the text. And then once you see the evidence in the text, then you can give reasons for why you think this modesty and humility is a good principle and those types of things. But don't make that your main reason. It's like when people say, you know, God could never burn people forever and ever because He's a just God and He's a merciful God. And whatever. Well, that's all true, but that's not going to be reason enough for someone to stop believing in an ever-burning hell. It wouldn't be me if I was a Bible believer. I'd say, oh, well, that may sound all good, but I want to know what the Bible says. So you show them in the Bible that it's not all those things. And then you tell them, and it only makes sense that it's not all those things. And you share with them the reasons why from a principle standpoint. So give them the Bible and then give them the principle. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we've had to talk about the real decision process, uh, the, the personal interaction, the things that really make someone turn from death to life in terms of our influence. I pray, Lord, that we will each one Remember that the Word of God is the only place where our power rests, but that our ability to reach the heart and to lead people to decisions is something that you've called us to have and to do. So bless each person here as they put it into practice is our prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.